Now this has been in our mind from the very beginning as we said to start with our objective was to disciple the nations. That's always been before us, never making any radical distinction between the home and the foreign fields. It's all one vast world that God loves and for whom Jesus died. But always thinking of the day when finally he would gather his people from the ends of the earth, from every tongue and tribe and nation, a people now who have come to realize their own helplessness, how God loved them so much that he was willing to bear their sins away and in brokenness and contrition they come to the cross and there pour out their sin in confession and like a little child in simple faith embrace the grace of God in forgiveness and a new life. That's always been in God's plan from the beginning to gather a people though broken now have been restored and are being made into a new creation a people that will never cease to praise Him. And that will happen by the reproduction of their life in others whom they reach, who in turn do the same with others in their influence until through the process of multiplication the world has opportunity to hear the gospel. Jesus was always projecting this vision. Often he referred to fruit uh, in the sense of gathering a harvest. In the 15th chapter of John, it's a beautiful agricultural uh, metaphor here. Whereas they were walking along, Jesus called attention to a, a true vine growing through the bushes. And he commented, I'm like that, that vine. And you're like the branches that grow off the vine. And then he added, it's from the branch there will be fruit. Now, the analogy is very obvious. Jesus is the life, the source of all that flows through that vine. But it is from the disciples growing off of that life that there is fruit. And to make the fruit more plentiful, the husband will come to prune the vine so that it can produce more fruitfully. And that's the way it is in life. He is pruning us continually so that we can be more effective and become a better disciple of Christ. But fruit is what he desired. Fruit that will remain, which is a display of God's own glory in initiating life. And so this concept of multiplication again and again is brought out 
in the teaching of Jesus and the coming of a harvest. There, in his first year of ministry, we have the first allusion to it when they were going uh, to Galilee. And they passed through the little village of Sychar. They arrived there about noontime. The disciples were hungry. So they went into town to get something to eat. But Jesus decided just to stay there at the well outside the village and let the disciples go without him. While he was sitting there on the curb of the well, and I've seen wells like this, as many of you have, if you go to Africa or India, outside the little village, usually there's a well, a town well, where people will come. And while he was there, this woman came with a big water jar to gather what she needed. Strange, though, that she would come at this hour of the day. Most women would come early in the morning when it was cool or later in the evening. And it was also a time when they could come at that hour and find fellowship with other women in, this, in, the, in the village. It was a social occasion. But this woman who came today at noon would not have felt comfortable with the other ladies. She had had a very tragic life. So she came at a time when she thought she would be alone. She didn't want to suffer the disdain and ridicule of other women in the community, condemning her for her sin. Though when Jesus saw her with her water jar, he asked for a drink very natural request. He was thirsty, and she had means of supplying his need, ingratiating himself to this woman, which was surprising to her. But it initiated a conversation which eventually led this woman to the discovery Jesus was the Messiah. And she was so overjoyed, she could not keep this good news to herself. As most women, she wanted to tell it to someone. She forgot all about her water. As far as I know, Jesus never did get his drink. But the lady rushed back into town to tell the good news to apparently some of the men, maybe some of those who had mistreated her. Meantime, the disciples returned. They saw this woman pass them on the way. The water jar was still at the well, so it was obvious what she had come to do. And they were surprised that Jesus would have even been speaking to such a woman. Not only that, he missed his lunch. And so they urge him to eat something. Now notice here this beautiful opportunity for teaching. Jesus reminds them, I have food to eat uh, that you don't know anything about, you see. Because my food is to do the will of him who sent me. You see that allusion to why Jesus had come? 
a mission to which later Jesus will say the disciples now are sent? And then he said, open your eyes. Look out there on the fields. Well, we were told those fields had just recently been planted. They were barren. Nothing was growing. But Jesus said, open your eyes. Look at those fields. The harvest is ready. <laughs> Can you imagine those disciples peering out on that barren field that had just been recently planted? That's all they saw. Of course, Jesus wanted them to use spiritual vision, eyes of faith. He wanted them to see what God was gathering, what He was already in the process of bringing in a harvest. And as those disciples looked at the field, they looked beyond the barren soil, and there in the distance they saw a group of men emerging from the village. They had heard the testimony of this redeemed woman. They were intrigued by it. Apparently, some of them already had believed her story, but they wanted to know more. Do you see them? They're walking through the fields. They're coming to Jesus. Look, the harvest is ready. And when they arrive and Jesus talks with them and tells them more about why he's come, the account tells us there were many more that believed. And they urge him to stay longer. And in his characteristic way, Jesus takes more time to be with them, to follow them up. For two extra days, he remains in Sychar with those men. And when he leaves, those Samaritan men come to the realization, as recorded there in chapter 4 and verse 42, they say, we know you are the Savior of the world. The whole world. I don't think his disciples had come to that realization yet. They weren't thinking of the whole world. They were thinking basically of their Jewish community, which they thought were the favored people of God. But here are these Samaritans. They had seen in Christ what was true in the Great Commission, that God's love reached across the earth that he was gathering a people from all the nations who would praise him. Oh, that we would use that kind of vision. Open our eyes and see the possibilities of the harvest all around us. I think of a man who was going through the desert in Arizona during the summertime. He was on the the, the, the train and the chair car and to keep out the glare of the sun. Everybody except this man had pulled down the window shade. But this man, he just kept looking out the window. A big smile came over his face. And finally the lady across the aisle became so curious she turned and said, Mister, can you tell me what you see out there in that wasteland that makes you smile? <laughs> And he kind of laughed and said, well, you see, I'm in the irrigation business. 
And I was just thinking to myself, if this land could only get some water, why, the desert would turn into a garden. That's what Jesus is teaching His disciples. He wants us to see the possibilities of grace. He wants us to see what God can do. To look beyond what appears to be lack of opportunity, but to see in your vision the unlimited possibilities of God's grace. To see a harvest. That's what Jesus was always looking at as He called Himself so frequently the Son of Man. Have you noticed about 80 times that expression is recorded on the lips of Jesus, more than any other self-designation. Others would speak of Him as the Son of God. But Jesus most often spoke of Himself as the Son of Man. Of course, it underscores that reference to the Incarnation. But more than that, it is a fulfillment of the Messianic promise of Daniel in the seventh chapter of his book, where he says, One is coming in the clouds of heaven like the Son of Man, and he will receive a kingdom that will never perish, a kingdom that encompasses every tongue and tribe and people and nation. It's a promise that looks to the day of our Lord's return in the clouds of glory that we sometimes call His second coming. Of course, in His first coming, Jesus knew He was sent to die. And that's where His mission would be fulfilled, on the cross at Calvary. It was there where everything needed to be done that could be done to redeem a people from all sin. And having finished that work, after confirming His disciples, He soon returned back to heaven to take His place at the right hand of the Majesty on high, where He reigns in absolute glory, awaiting the time when this gospel of the kingdom will finally reach the ends of the earth and the harvest will be gathered and He will return to reign over His kingdom. But that was always before Him. And so when He preached, we are told, He preached the gospel of the kingdom. That is, the reign of Christ where He is ruler, where He is Lord of all. That's the kingdom. He said, this kingdom, actually, you enter now when you're born of the Spirit. You enter the kingdom. Incidentally, you don't build a kingdom. You enter it. But it's not yet consummated. And so he told the disciples to pray for the coming of the kingdom. That's always our concern. And it will not be consummated until this gospel of the kingdom, he said, is preached in all the world for a witness, and then the end will come, Matthew 24, 14. He lived, though, in that expectation, projecting that vision of the coming of the kingdom. For the moment, of course, as the Son of Man, he realized he didn't have a place to lay his head, nothing that he owned, 
but that made him no less conscious who he was. Yes, he said, the Son of Man will be rejected of the chief priests and scribes. The Son of Man will be killed, but the Son of Man will rise again on the third day. And the Son of Man, he said, will ascend back into the heavens. And the Son of Man, he said, will sit at the right hand of the throne on high. And the Son of Man will return in the clouds of glory. This was always in his mind. He was the Son of Man, the coming King who would reign over his people, embracing the nations. Oh, this was the throbbing joy in the heart of Christ. Whatever he was going through now, he could see the end of it all. And he was teaching the disciples to live in that same expectation. The last time he had supper with the disciples in the upper room, you remember when he passed the cup for the last time, he told the disciples, I'll not eat this meal with you anymore or drink of the fruit of the wine with you in this world until I take it with you again in the Father's kingdom. Every time we observe this last supper, it's a memorial of more than his death. It's a celebration in anticipation of his return. When we look to the day when finally the gospel has reached the nations and his people are gathered from all the nations to praise him forever. Oh, that's the vision that Christ instills in the hearts of his disciples, a vision which still should make our hearts throb with unspeakable joy. John, the beloved, saw that day. He wrote about it on the Isle of Patmos where he was imprisoned for his testimony. And he had this vision of heaven. And in the seventh chapter of the Revelation, he describes what he sees there at the throne of God. This vast throng that are gathered around. We're told they're clothed in white garments, indicative of their purity. Their robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And they're waving palm branches, symbolical of their joy. And then he says, they come from every tongue, from every tribe, from every people, from every nation. Do you realize what he's describing? The Great Commission is fulfilled. It's already done. In the schedule of God, it is already announced. We just live on this side of eternity, but we know how it all will end. We've read the last chapter. And we know that this message of the kingdom will reach the ends of the earth. And any activity now that which, us, which does not contribute to that destiny is an exercise in futility. Because nothing finally will remain except the word of the living God and the souls of men and women. 
You see, the Great Commission simply puts us on the wavelength of, the, of history to which all things are moving when finally Jesus will be proclaimed King and Lord of all. Oh, this is the vision I want to impart to my kids and to my followers. I want them to see the joy that is beyond and develop in them this vision of multiplication. It doesn't really matter how small is the beginning as long as those in whom we invest largely will reproduce what they've learned. Not that we're the only one. Thankfully, others that have more grace and more knowledge will also be impacting that life, and perhaps their influence will be much greater than ours. Though for a time with a few people, we may be one of the most decisive influences in their own learning. But we want them to have this vision of seeing at last the day when finally the kingdom comes to fruition and dream with them about their role in that coming harvest and anticipate, of course, the final ingathering. One of the things that I like to go through with my boys, it's, I think, become my favorite Bible study. Before they get away, uh, toward, the, toward the end of time that we're together, we'll go through the book of Revelation and turn our attention to the 14 scenes of the throne of God that, is, that are described in the book. And note especially what is being heard in these various participants around the throne. Sometimes it's the living creatures, the seraphim. Sometimes it's 24 elders, white-robed. Sometimes it's the angels, the archangels. Sometimes it's the multitude that's too numerous for anyone to ever count. Sometimes it's every creature on earth and under the earth and in the sea and in the heavens. But as you see the throne and listen to what they're saying, they're giving praise to God. I call these the songs of heaven because they reflect that spirit of gladness and victory that characterizes those that are in His presence. And I want the boys to capture some of that joy and that expectancy that brings the future into such a glorious picture. Yes, as the book of Revelation unfolds, in the last days, the judgments upon the world become greater in intensity. It's a horrible picture. And things get worse as we go along. And I wish today I could be more optimistic, but I have no hope for this world. I think it's doomed already. And as we read in the 12th chapter of the Revelation, conditions will become worse toward the end of history because the devil knows his time is short. But in the midst of this, we can join that great affirmation that is heard around the throne of heaven. 
when we're told that a loud voice is heard saying, Now has come the kingdom and the power and the glory. And the accuser of the brethren has been cast down, who accused them before our God day and night. And we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And because we love not our life so much as shrink from death, therefore rejoice, you heavens, in all that is in them. Oh, there's rejoicing in heaven. That's the reality. That's eternity. And it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And I want these disciples to capture some of that joy in their heart and to live in that expectancy. So, usually we will memorize these verses that indicate what's going on around the throne of heaven. So when we get there, all we need is the music, and we actually can join the choir. But I want them to get their vision lifted beyond a world that is passing away. A world that is already doomed and under judgment. A world that someday will be no more. And see the other world. To see the city of God coming down from heaven that will now take the place of what is evil around us. To see it as a bride adorned for a husband. And we are that bride, the bride of Christ that will be presented unto him finally without any spot or blemish. That's the last scene of the throne described in the 19th chapter of the Revelation. After all, the other judgments have passed and in the preceding chapter, Babylon, representing the world system, has finally fallen and it's going up in flame. After these things, John says, he heard again the sound of rejoicing around the throne. As they are saying, Hallelujah, the Lord God reigns. And then again he heard that voice as they shouted, Hallelujah. Oh, imagine the intensity of that sound, using parabolic language, of course, because it is so un, unscientific. It is, it is so beyond human comprehension. You have to imagine it. And we're told that voice sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, as if a thousand oceans were breaking on the sea, or like loud peals of thunder rolling sonic beams splitting the heavens as they are shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready in fine linen bright and clean was given her to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts 
of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write these words, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Oh, what a message. In that final presentation of the church, when we are presented now to him who is worthy, who sits upon the throne, presented unto him as a bride prepared for the wedding day. It's not strange the Bible begins in a wedding in the Garden of Eden. And so the Bible begin, or ends just as it begins, except the ending wedding is infinitely greater and more beautiful. And everything that we're going through now is pointing to that day when finally we'll be presented to Him as a bride. A bride that He will cherish and love forever. I remember my own wedding day that goes back now about 58 years. It was on June the 3rd, 1951, when I stood at the altar of a little Methodist church up in Lancaster, Ohio, waiting for my bride to come down the aisle. I've been waiting for that day for a long time. And as we were nearing that date, my bride with one of the girls from the college had actually started to work on her wedding dress. They decided to, to do it together. But the custom in that day was much like, I guess, the custom many places now. The, uh, the groom is not to see his bride in the wedding dress until the actual day of the wedding. Now, I don't know why that is, but that's what I was told. And I was trying to observe the custom. Of course, I had to be at my best, too, and so I had to buy a new suit. It had to be a wool suit that would last all year or longer. Only for one, for one good suit. There I was standing at the altar of that little church. It was packed with people. There was no air conditioning. They didn't know what air conditioning was. There wasn't a breath of air. And perspiration just rolling down my, my arms. <laughs> when is this going to start? But finally, the organist struck up the organ, the wedding march, the back door opened, and here I saw my bride for the first time adorned in her wedding gown. And just as I had imagined, it was the most beautiful dress I'd ever seen. A long, flowing, glistening, white, satin gown with a train behind. And it had no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And when I looked at my bride, her countenance reflected her attire. There was a beauty. There was a love that reached out and embraced me with all that I was and hoped to be. That's why those vows we took at the altar were so beautiful. They were but a public confirmation of the love between us uh, that was complete 
we would call perf perfect. Now, I have to say, my understanding of what that meant in that day was far from complete. And in these last 58 years, I've learned a lot more about the meaning of those vows that I took that day at the altar. There have been some hard times. We've gone through some deep valleys. And yet the struggles God has worked through only to teach us more how much we need each other and how much we love and how much more He loves us. That's why that experience still lingers in my mind with such joy. It was just a foretaste of another wedding that will be infinitely greater than anything I can even imagine. I cannot even conceive, it can't enter into the heart of man what God has prepared for His children. But that is more certain than I'm standing here this afternoon. That is reality. That is eternity. And that's the way the Great Commission is leading us. And though we still don't know everything that lies ahead, we know that the day is coming when finally He'll gather all of His people from the nations to praise Him, to love Him, and to rejoice in Him forever. And in that day, every knee will bow and every tongue declare to the glory of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. He has won the victory. Just as He said when He gave the command, all authority, all power is mine in heaven and on earth. And in that power, in that authority, He sends us forth more than conquerors through Him that loved us until finally we come to that day when the work is finished and the harvest is gathered and we shall be with Him forever. Oh, what a way to live in this present age in anticipation. Even as you reach out your hands, trusting that others that are following you will join you in that day. Blessed is the name of Jesus. This is a working day now. Our rest will come in the next world. But what a joy awaits us when finally we hear that, that greeting. By His grace alone, well done, good and faithful servant. I trust that's 
your anticipation. That's what you're looking toward. Through no merit of your own, only to the grace of God. Remember, that wedding garment is given by God. It's a token of His grace and reflects only that love that never let us go, even when we had turned to our own way. But that is our adornment. And as He has enabled us in this present age, let us walk as He leads us in the way of holiness, looking to the time when finally the Great Commission is fulfilled. Oh, this is the anticipation of the lifestyle of the Great Commission.